Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today. We have a tremendous guest on the show this week. Before we get to that, I want to remind you that if you have some feedback on the show, if you have some questions or comments, we have feedback form and comment forms at our website at thenexttrack.com. Don't be shy. As I said, we have a guest this week via Skype, so please forgive any audio murkiness. He is British conductor Alexander Joel. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. It's terrific to have you. Thank you for having me. Alex, we wanted to talk to you about conducting. It's this mystifying profession of the, the man or woman who leads an army of musicians and manages to take all these disparate instruments and make music sound beautiful. But you didn't really start out wanting to be a conductor, did you? You, you were going in a different direction in your studies. Well, I, as a child, I used to, you know, play play an instrument, of course, the, the piano and the violin. And <clears throat> then I went to school and, uh, you know, you do the usual whatever, you study something to go to university. So I actually started studying law at King's College London. Um, and then I didn't like it and decided I wanted to become a musician. I didn't think I would be good enough. So I, you know, it was... Uh, Something I wasn't sure about embarking on, but I decided, you know, if I don't at least try, um, I'll never know. So I, I thought, well, if I fail, I'll do something else. So I tried to get into the to the Vienna uh, Academy of Music, the Conservatory of Music, and uh, I tried once. I didn't get in the first time, but the second time around, I got in. I got accepted, and I started studying conducting. Does one grow up wanting to be a conductor, or is it a natural evolution of your experience as a musician that makes you think that instead of performing, you want to be the one directing? I was actually always fascinated by the conductor from a, from a, from a very small child. We went actually a lot more to the opera than we went to concerts, and we always sat in a box uh, on the side of the auditorium where I could, my parents sat at the back of the box and I sat in the front, and I could always see the conductor, and that was actually the way I looked at the whole evening. It was a, thing that interested me the most actually so I, I always had a I was always fascinated by the conductors and um, and then of course I, as I said I started playing the piano and the violin and I mean I was clear I was never going to be good enough to be a concert pianist just about nobody is it's so so difficult and so competitive so um, it, it seemed to me natural to try and try and study conducting which is what what interested me are, are there a lot of people who study conducting um, at the time they, there were about, we weren't that big a class, so about three or four students per year. Compared to, say, a couple dozen pianists and violinists and others? Yeah, no, the, the piano classes were much bigger. There was only one conducting class at the Conservatory of Music, where, as I said, we were on average about, say, at one time, 15, 16 students in all the years together. And for, for pianists, you had per year, I don't know, 40, 50, and that was at the Conservatory of Music, then there was the Academy of Music, there must have been at least 100 students a year, I'd say, at least, or 200 a year. So it's, it's a much bigger faculty. Yeah. So you currently live in Hamburg. You're, if I understand from your biography, you're half English, half German. Most of your musical career has been in Germany? Uh, Vienna, Austria, and Germany. Yeah. Okay. So German-speaking countries, then. Uh, yeah. We'll link to your website in the show notes. Your repertoire lists an awful lot of opera. In fact, almost as much opera as orchestral music. Do you prefer conducting opera over orchestral music? Well, I started my career as a, as a purely opera conductor. I did this sort of old-fashioned career, which nowadays 
is not really the way to make a career. Nowadays, you just win a competition or do competitions, and then you get an agent, and they sell you as a new young conductor. That's the way it's been going now for 10, 15 years. That's the way to make a career. Back then, it didn't work when I started. If you won a competition, it really didn't mean that much. You could get a few little concerts here and there, but it didn't really launch your career. That has very much changed now. Back then, young conductors, when I started, were there was no demand for young conductors. They wanted conductors with experience, and nowadays, it's sort of the trend has changed. Um, so back then, I, I started working in opera houses. I got a, a, my first job in small theatres, uh, in a small theatre in, in Austria called to Baden, where I started off as a coach and a, a pianist for the singers. And I had to sort of conduct the chorus a lot as well and conduct the performances and little concerts. I did a bit of everything. And then I moved up to a slightly bigger house in Klagenfurt. I don't want to bore you know my entire career. But basically, I started off as an opera purely mainly opera conductor which is actually the best way to do it because you conducting opera is is much harder than symphonic work and why is that coordinating everything is much much harder and getting organic tempos for the singers for the orchestra for the chorus is uh, is a whole skill it's a whole skill set so you're working with the orchestra in the pit you're working with the soloist on the stage you're working with the chorus wherever they're located all at the same time. That's right. And you have to preferably speak the language of the opera you're conducting pretty fluently because you have to work on their pronunciation. So, you know, it comes in useful if you can speak fluent Italian, French, German, which is the three, I guess, three main languages. If you can speak Czech and Russian, you're really good. I don't speak Czech or Russian, unfortunately. So it's always hard for me to conduct Yana Czech or or Tchaikovsky uh, operas. But uh, so you've got to, you've got to learn, learn the language skills you should really possess. Uh, that really makes it much harder. And as I said, the coordination is much uh, much more difficult. And it's, it's also a much more imperfect art form, of course, because it's, it's very difficult to get everything completely together. And sometimes, you know, the singers will be too far back on the stage and you won't, they won't hear you properly and they won't quite be with you. And well, they're too far in the back, and then, then you don't hear the singers, and then you're always blamed that the orchestra's too loud, but actually the singers are usually too far back. That's why you don't hear them. <laughs> but then the poor conductor always, you know, gets gets uh, immediately gets a bad review. Oh, the orchestra's too loud. Or what you then do is if you make the orchestra play very, very softly so you can actually hear the singer who's right at the back, then the critics write, oh, it did sound a little colorless, the orchestra. So, <laughs> so opera. You can't win. You can't win with opera. You, it's a sort of, it's only for real lovers. I mean, you know, you've got to really love conducting opera. But I, I really love conducting opera. I say, but and symphonic is more. You can be more idealistic. You can work on every single little detail with the orchestra, uh, and and get really all the details out, which is very difficult to do in opera because you often have in many operas in Germany changing, rotating casts in the orchestra. So if you work on a tiny little color in the oboe, you're doing it for one play, and then the next day somebody else is sitting there. So it's, it's, it's a sort of different way to, uh, to rehearse. But also I would guess there's another advantage to doing opera. You perform them more than once. If you're performing some symphonies tonight, it's just a one-off unless you're going on a long tour, whereas in opera you're doing a run of, what, 10, 20 performances usually? Well, it depends. The thing is with symphonic, usually you have usually you have two or three performances in a town. It depends on the town, but usually. Um, but you only really rehearse for, four, depending, three or four days, five days most. Uh, whereas opera, you're rehearsing six weeks for a new production. So Because you've got to rehearse all the staging rehearsals, you've got all the staging rehearsals, uh, then you've got the ultra rehearsals, and you've got the, the so-called... Uh, 
Italiana rehearsals with just the singers and the orchestra and so on. And then you have the stage orchestra and then you have runs. So it's a much, much longer, um, much, much longer rehearsal period. And then you have, yeah, anything between six to 10 shows, depending. If it's a revival of an opera, you'll maybe rehearse two weeks. In some German houses, you rehearse maybe two or three days and you have no orchestra rehearsal and you have to go in cold with absolutely no rehearsal with the orchestra. Uh, and very little rehearsal with the singers, so that is really nerve-wracking. Believe me, that you really got to be experienced and know what you're doing to to pull that off because it can go very haywire. Lucky. On, on your website, your, the page that lists your repertoire. Does that mean that these are the works that you can go in and perform on a dime like that? That you know well enough that you can just pick them up with a few days rehearsal? It depends on the piece. I mean, a few last year, a couple of years ago. I mean, I did an example. I did Frauen Schatten with Richard Strauss about six, seven years ago, and somebody asked me to take over very, very short notes and said no, because I, I just hadn't done the piece for so long that I, and it's such a difficult piece. But yes, these are pieces I know. And I mean, if you ask me to conduct a piece I haven't done in 20 years, I must admit it's not going to be something that I just can pick up until tomorrow. But generally speaking, these pieces I've already conducted, I can pick them up in a, in a day or two, and some of them right away. So that's happened I've had to jump in sometimes with no rehearsal the day of this performance, just grab the score, grab the, grab my tail from my conducting stick, travel to wherever it was I had to go to and just take over without rehearsal. Yeah. Isn't that sometimes how performers and conductors get their break when someone is sick and someone jumps in at the last minute and then everyone realizes that this was a great performer or conductor that, that dropped in? Yeah, there, there, there's some careers that started like that. I think Leonard Bernstein jumped in for Bruno Walter and became famous overnight. That doesn't happen so often nowadays, um, uh, I don't think. I mean, there are people who've started careers like that, but you have to be able to sustain a career. That's that's uh, not, not so easy. And in a way, when you jump in, if you know the piece very well, you can't really lose. Because if you conduct it halfway decently, everybody's on the edge of their seats. Everyone's trying hard. So with a bit of luck, you're, and you're, you're like the sensation you've jumped in and everyone thinks it's so spectacular that you've done it. So you'll suddenly get a lot of attention. But it's no different to, you know, taking over performance in a house with no rehearsal. It's pretty much the same thing. Right. Richard Wagner is quoted as saying, the whole duty of a conductor is comprised in his ability always to indicate the right tempo. And if you just look at what a conductor does, you can think that that's all a conductor does. Um, but... What I see a lot on DVDs of classical performances is you get these films of conductors in rehearsal. And it looks to me like the real work of a conductor is in the rehearsal and less in the actual performance. Can you walk us through the process of rehearsing and then performing? And can you tell us exactly what you do when you're conducting during a performance that isn't just keeping time? Okay, let me let me start off with what Wagner said, because that's very interesting, because hitting the... I just did the whole ring last season, um, and it's very interesting to talk about tempos because tempos, it has to be extremely precise. It's not like you just give one tempo and, okay, we're done now for the next 10 minutes, and then you just wave your hair around. In my case, I don't have any hair to wave around, but wishful thinking, right? Uh, but uh, uh, and, and, and just then change the tempo. You, you, you're actually permanently changing the tempo in an opera. The whole time, very minimally, well, not the whole time, but um, you, you, you're permanently like sculpting the tempo to really fit the music. To really, fit, And it's very interesting with Wagner because it, it unfortunately takes a while to really work out what is the best tempo. So you're sort of, you know, chopping, chip, chipping away at it, so to speak, and finding out, and you're doing it 
sort of trial and error thing. When you're doing peace for the first time, so I must admit, the first time the ring, I try things out, and then I realize, ah, this is not good, and I, I listen to all my, all my rehearsals. And then I realize, oh, the, the, the singer sounds rushed here, he hasn't got enough time, or here the chorus, I, I feel more comfortable in a faster tempo, you just feel it. If it's not together, you just have to start, first of all, blaming yourself. Because if, you, if you're not absolutely organic, it won't work. And another thing is if, in Wagner, there are certain tempos that for the orchestra, if it's too slow, it's harder to play than if it's too fast, believe it or not, because you actually hear things in more detail, that, that you, you hear the mistakes more easily. Certain things in the first violins are very fast, and, but if you play them too slow, it gets even harder to play, funny enough. And, and the other way around, if you do it too, uh, too fast, then they can't play it anymore. They literally, the first violins in Wagner, if you hit the tempo just a bit too fast, they can't play some of these, you know, like the Feuerzauber, for instance, the so-called... Uh, what's the translation in English? Um, the end of the end of Valkyria, you know, when they have the very fast runs in the violins. So that's the first thing. So getting exactly the right tempo all the time is extremely tricky and really, you know, it has to something has to be really fine tuned in an ideal world. Now, so <clears throat> coming to the, the 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 point about rehearsals, yes, that's true. Most of the work's done in rehearsal. In opera, though, you have very very little rehearsals. So an opera orchestra is going to be very used to following exactly everything you do and all the colors you show. So you can show the dynamic just to start with. That's the first basic thing, the dynamic and the tempo. But that's basically the main structure of the piece. But then, of course, the way you breathe with the music, the way you have to give cues, you have to show the, the, the exact color of the notes you want to, uh, you want to produce. So if the, how's, how's the accent going to sound? Is it going to be a very... Hard accent, is it going to be a very soft accent? Is it going to be an expressible accent? Is it going to be a short accent? All these things you can actually show. I'm not even be begin with telling you what it means to give all the cues for the singers on stage and if something goes wrong, saving all that. So that's, that's all the world of opera. In the symphonic world, the most important thing is really the rehearsals and then letting the orchestra play on the evening without getting in their way. Um, it's an interesting combination because if you if you don't if you don't do enough, then people say, well, he's you know just too arrogant. He's not doing anything. But if you jump around too much, they go, we know how to play, so you don't have to <laughs> jump around, show off. It's a bit so sort of getting this the balance is is crucial in a concert. Um, and so rehearsing is the, is obviously incredibly important. The most important thing. Um, and then you have to decide how you're going to rehearse. And there's a thousand different ways to rehearse. So the first one is to just go on the technical side of things. So if something's not in tune, you have to tune it up in the winds. Or if the strings have problems playing a passage, you have to stop the orchestra and then say, say, take the first violins. There's usually going to be a few passages in the first violins that are very difficult to play. So do them slowly so they can really hear what they're playing, make sure it's really in tune. And then do it, you know, and then speed up the tempo until you get to the tempo you want. Um, of course, the better and better the orchestras are, the less and less you'll have these technical issues. Um, <clears throat> so when you get to the, I don't know, the Berlin or Vienna Philharmonic, or well, that's just to mention too. I mean, I'm probably offending millions of orchestras now. There are thousands of great, great orchestras, you know, Chicago, Boston, New York, whatever. You mention it. There's, there's a many, 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 many extreme groups. They won't have many technical difficulties, almost none. In fact, all the pieces that are usually played, the Mahler symphonies, the Beethoven symphonies, these usual, the standard repertoire, they'll just play in their sleep. Um, if, you, if you're playing something unknown, so let's say something like a Korngold piece, there may be a few passages they struggle with, but usually they can play. So then comes the question of the interpretation. So you have to then... Um, you know, start talking about the sound and the colors you want, 
and the atmosphere you want, and and you can really go into a lot of details. Also, technical details, how you want the strings to play, the tip of the bow, the middle of the bow, you want a ricochet. I mean, these are all technical terms, and this will all really make a huge difference in, in the interpretation. Uh, and... Um, and then you have the problem that if you talk too much, they will hate you, the orchestra, because you're, they, they'll say, this kind of play will sort a lot of things out ourselves. So that's the first point. But if you don't talk enough, they'll say, well, he's very superficial, he has nothing to say. So getting that balance is very, very difficult. And then you get to the next problem is that different orchestras want different things. So some orchestras will like it if you're sort of a nice guy and you come in and you make a joke every now and then and you're pretty relaxed and, well, work in a very intense way, but you're just sort of a nice guy. And others will just hate that. They go, oh, why is he, you know, trying to be nice to us? We need to work here. Uh, and it depends on the countries you're in, funnily enough. I find in, in Germany, the orchestras like uh, someone who's very strict and, and, you know. Well, they all want you to be like Carrie-Ann. Perhaps, yes. It, it, and it depends. I mean, the, the problem is that you can only really always be yourself. So uh, in other countries, they hate it if you come and have anything that's arrogant and you're not very collegial with them. They don't like that. So it depends. I mean, I find the English-speaking countries, you know, you can be on first-name terms with people right away and it's just, it's, it's, there's no offense taken. Quite the contrary, they'll actually call me, like I was very surprised in London, I mean, pleasantly surprised in Covent Garden where they just called me, oh, Alex, and then I was supposed to call them Brian or John or whatever. And it was really, really nice atmosphere. But you don't, you don't, they don't do this in Germany ever, ever. Well, because that's already the German language and, and French and Italian. They have the familiar and formal forms. That's right. You've got the Z and the, and the du. And of course, yeah, whereas in English it's all you. So it's much. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it depends on the orchestras. And so with some orchestras you gel and with, with others you find it you know, more difficult to find. It's like meeting, um, you know, a, a partner you go on a date with. You know, some, you sometimes just get along with them and sometimes you just feel a bit strange. It's kind of the same thing. It's like a first date. <laughs> you did say something interesting, how different countries have different attitudes toward the conductors. And that also helps contribute to the, the tone that you hear in an orchestra. A German orchestra generally sounds different than a French orchestra, which sounds different than an American orchestra. Is this purely cultural, the, the baggage of history, or is a lot of this related to the way that they're educated about music? Or since so many musicians work in other countries now, is this becoming more of a melting pot? It's definitely becoming more of a melting pot because a lot of I mean, a lot of Europeans study in the States, a lot of Asians study in Europe or in the States as well. A lot of, um, yeah, it's, I mean, American study. It's really, really just, and you have just teachers from all kinds of countries teaching everywhere. Uh, so, so, but I'm sure, I mean, I conducted quite a lot in Dresden and they definitely have their own sound, the Dresden, uh, the, the Staatskapelle Dresden. So they do come from a tradition and the teachers who teach in Dresden, because it's of course from the, um, the, 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 um, uh, it was behind the Iron Kern, you say. In East Germany, yeah. East Germany, of course. So it's, it's, that used to be quite secluded. They didn't have that many guests. They had a lot of people coming from the, the east from behind the Iron Curtain, traveling around and teaching. Right. So, so the sound there is quite uniform. But I find uh, the sound in the orchestras, it's, they all have their own sound, but it's... it's, it's the, the Viennese orchestras have their own sound also because of the instruments. They have the oboes and the horns that are... And also, I think, the clarinets and bassoons. They're, they're specific to, to Vienna or Austria, let's say. Uh, the Vienna horn and the Vienna oboe is only played in Austria. 
um, as opposed to the French horn and the French horn. But so they have their own sound due to that. Um, you also find I also find that German and Austrian orchestras play a lot later behind the beats. There's a sort of difference. And that means the sound is often slightly softer. I'm not talking about a fast tempo. Don't play on the beat a fast tempo. But if you give a, a, a chord, it will come in very late, like a string chord. It's difficult to... So a slower attack. They have a slower attack, and it comes later. And this is yeah. very annoying, I know, for, say, American conductors who come for the first time to a European orchestra. They can't deal with it. Like, what the hell? When you play, play on the beat, on the beat. <laughs> but see, they, they have a sort of more relaxed way of the sound being produced. And that way you get a much richer and sort of more indirect sound. Um, so, yeah, I know when I first came back to Covent Garden, I was surprised at how much they actually play on the beat, but that's very easy to adjust to. That's no problem. Does the hall that an orchestra plays in, assuming that they play in the same hall regularly, does that affect the way the orchestra plays? It obviously affects the sounds that people hear, but does that also have an effect on the, the orchestra's internal sound? Yeah, I mean, the acoustic is... is I, I don't think people actually realize how important the acoustic is. It's it's not just a little whim of musicians go, oh, I don't like the acoustic. No, it's a huge, huge, huge difference. If you listen, for instance, to the Toscanini recordings with the NBC Orchestra, where there's a really lousy acoustic, it must have been a very, very dry horn. It sounds horrible. It's Toscanini with the NBC Orchestra. It doesn't sound good. And I remember the first time I conducted the Vienna Musikverein, you know, the Golden Hall in Vienna, I was actually at the time a student and it was just, I mean, there was a student orchestra who were performing there. I was just the assistant conductor at the time and I got to perform or rehearse a bit in that hall. I couldn't believe the difference in the way the orchestra sounded. It was, it sounded like the Vienna Philharmonic, I thought, in that time. So the, the acoustic makes a huge difference. And, and, and the principal guest conductor in, in Antwerp and Ghent, the, at the, the Flemish Opera. And there two, we play in two different opera houses, in Ghent and in Antwerp. Now, Antwerp has the most sensational acoustic, incredible acoustic. And Ghent, it's not that great. It's actually not that bad. It's just compared to Antwerp, it's awful. So in, 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 uh, there's, more, there's more reverb in Antwerp. So the orchestra has to play slightly shorter and more articulated. Otherwise, it gets too... too it gets muddy. Over time. It's muddy, exactly. So especially when you're doing more, so you've got to play quite short to get some sort of structure to the piece. Uh, and in Ghent, you have to play everything loud because it's not loud, sorry, long, because there's no, there's no reverb. So everything's dry or drier, and you have to really stay on the notes more to, to make them sound, to make them sound more. But funny enough, to play Mozart in Ghent is, I find, better, or even badly, than in Antwerp, because it's too boomy in Antwerp. We just did... Um, Korngold's um, Das Wunder der Heliane, I think it's translated as The Miracle of Heliane, it's this completely unknown opera of this, but Korngold's very, very rich. You probably know him from the movie music. It's like movie music. So, of course, in Ghent it didn't sound like it because nothing blended. And in Antwerp it sounded sublime because it all melted together. The instruments melted together. It was, it was absolutely incredible. So what happens when you play outdoors? Uh, I grew up in New York City, and the New York Philharmonic would do their outdoor concert tour in the summer, and we would go to the local park, which was just in my neighborhood, and we'd hear them play. And, of course, they'd always do the 1812 overture with the cannons and all that. But they would play, you know, an hour-and-a-half performance how hard is it to perform outdoors where there is literally no acoustics? Uh, yeah, that's that's tricky. Um, usually it's mics nowadays, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah, back then they didn't have mics, though. Well, I heard the Boston Film... Uh, sorry, Boston Symphony, forgive me. Boston Symphony in Tanglewood at that open 
Well, it's sort of it's the shed, right? It's called the shed, I think. Yeah. But that's sort of half outdoors, but the acoustic there is great. Well, because like the Hollywood Bowl, they have like a shell-shaped thing behind them to have acoustics. But when I would see the New York Philharmonic in the park, it was just the baseball field behind them was the only acoustics that they had. <laughs> it sounds too great, probably. Yeah, there's not much you can do. Well, nowadays it's it's pretty much all mics. So when you're conducting an orchestra, you're the star. You're the person on stage. And when you're conducting an opera, you're in the pit and the singers are the stars. When you're on stage conducting an orchestra, conductors tend to be more effusive with more gestures and they get more like Leonard Bernstein and they get all... What's this all about? I, I've seen some conductors where they just merely need to raise an eyebrow to get the string section to do something and others that have to flail about. Why? I, I understand this is part of a personal style, but why do some conductors need to make so many gestures and others not? Um, well, let's put it this way. Starting to, the, the, the thing is with opera, you should be very controlled in the way you conduct because if you, if you jump around too much, it's going to get too loud and you won't hear the singers. So you have to actually stay very controlled the structure. Otherwise, it's not good. And you're, and you're so busy uh, keeping the whole thing together and breathing with the singers that you, if, you, if you're doing a good job, you shouldn't have time that much time to jump around. Well, some, sometimes you're playing for an hour at a time Whereas if you're doing a symphony, maybe you're doing a 10-minute movement and then you're pausing. So with, a, with an opera, you've got this longer period that you're, you're sort of playing without a net for longer. Yeah, and so, so coming to the symphonic world, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people jumping around. It's not really necessary. Um, but of course, we all get carried away in the, in the beautiful bits and the, you know, the loud bits. And I mean, we probably all overconduct actually we, we, we you could conduct with half half uh and it would work as well actually to be honest but no one does i, I saw a concert early this year murray pariah was playing beethoven's fifth piano concerto and he was conducting from the piano and i find this interesting that basically the orchestra doesn't need a conductor and when he gets to the tutti part he'll either play with his left hand and use one hand to wave it around or he'll wave around both hands but it looks like the conductor doesn't really do anything there yeah and um, well if you've got a very good it is possible to play concertos like this, the so-called the, the earlier concertos like a beethoven mozart uh without a conductor that's no problem even a mozart concerto you can do them without a conductor you, you don't need it if you've got a good concert master if the orchestra can hear the pianist they can just sort of play on their own. It's more comfortable with a conductor, but it's possible without. The, the advantage of playing without a conductor is that it forces everyone to really listen uh, and play and breathe and pulsate together. And that way is actually a lot more organic than often than with a conductor because they're absolutely forced to really, really concentrate. Uh, and, and so it makes for interesting interpretations. I, I just recently saw online they played the right of spring without a conductor. So go figure. But then, of course, you've got the concertmaster basically leading the whole thing from the violin, which is how it right. started. Originally, there wasn't that there were no conductors. It was just the first violins. Everyone was following the first violin. You can't really do that in opera, though. That's the, that's the thing. So that's why I must admit, when I conduct symphonic works, I should probably not say this because I'm going to give away what is kind of fat, is that you don't need the conductor that much it's true because it's all done in rehearsal as we talked before and i always feel you get so much success conducting symphonic works and it's so unfair because it's so much easier than conducting operas where you get half the success and tying into what i was saying at the beginning of the podcast 
uh, if, if you're, you're unlucky and the stage director put the singers at the back and you can't hear the singers, you get blamed because you can't hear the singers. So it's really uh, funny, funny worlds. Yeah. Isn't one of the most important things a conductor does with a, uh, an orchestra is get them to start at the same time? Yes. Yeah, that looks very easy, but uh, trust me, it's not. Well, of course, when you know how to do it, it's not a problem. But when you study, you're quite, it's quite surprising how difficult it actually is. To get them to start together at the same tempo and the same articulation, the same sound. It's not that easy. Conducting can be hazardous, and I'm reminded of the story of Jean-Baptiste Lully, who spiked himself in his foot with his conducting baton or whatever it is. And, and back in the day, they used to bang a stick on the floor to keep the time. When did conductors change from that big staff to the small sort of magic wand that you use now. And, and of course, some conductors just use their hands, right? Well, probably when Jean-Baptiste Lully dies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be good motivation to find another way to do something. Yeah. No, I don't know, actually. I think it started in uh, sometime in the 19th century. I think people just used their hands. And after a while, they thought if you've got a baton, it's easy to see. And you can do much smaller movements. You can just do, I mean, on Skydown, you can see this, but you can't on the point. You can just yeah. do this, and you could follow this. But if you've got a baton... Uh, everyone can see it, so it's just it's just more economical. So, what is your favorite work to conduct? <sighs> There's so many to choose from. Uh, well, funny enough, I'm doing the, the Beethoven's Eroica um, in a couple of weeks, and I must say I love that piece. But of course, I mean, give me most Mahler symphonies are phenomenal to conduct, but all conductors like Mahler symphonies. It's, it's because they're real. They're, they're, they just use the orchestra to the utmost. Of course, and you always have a tremendous success, regardless of how badly you conduct them. It, it's true. They're, they're, they're so spectacular, and, and with large orchestras or large choirs as well, and that great hammer at the end of the sixth, if you're using you know original instruments and a real wooden hammer. Yeah, I did that one. I've done actually almost all the Mahler symphonies. They're, they're phenomenal to conduct. They really, the, like I say, the heart of yeah, in basically symphonic music, that was the uh, height, I would say. Um, um, no one really topped it after that. Uh, not really. I mean, of course, there was some great composers, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, whatever, many more shown there. But that was really the top. Uh, but, but in a way, Beethoven really was, in a way, looking at this Eroica, Beethoven's Third Symphony, it really, that's where the modern symphonic works really started. Before that, it was Haydn and Mozart. And the early Beethoven symphonies were rather written in that style. And the Beethoven, he got bored, Beethoven, and then he started losing his hearing, and he wasn't happy with his first two works. And he said, okay, now I've got to do something. I've got to do something different. This is just not... And he really revolutionized symphonic writing after that. It was, it was absolutely revolutionary. And basically, everything that came after that was based on that. That was the thing that that exploded the symphonic form. Alexander Joel, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, now we're going to present our next tracks. Kirk, what's fascinating you this week? So in last week's episode, we looked at Apple Music and we were both discussing how we discover music sometimes. And this morning... I had one of those discovery moments and I was looking on For You and it was the new releases section and at the bottom there was a new album by Blaine L. Renninger. Blaine Renninger was one of the founders of Tuxedo Moon and that immediately said, wow, I haven't listened to Tuxedo Moon in more than 30 years. So I went searching on Apple Music and I put on their second album, which is called Desire. It's from 1981. 
Now, I have to tell you, there's something about music that can bring back memories like the Madeleine in, in Proust's novel. It, when I started listening to this music, I was, I was just transported back to Queens when I was 20 years old and listening to this stuff on the Walkman. It's really interesting music. It's Funnily enough, Apple Music classifies it as jazz. It's really a post-punk, avant-garde, slightly electro, slightly atonal type of music. And sometimes it's funky and it's got weird vocals, sort of maybe Roxy music-ish. And sometimes it's instrumental, kind of Eno-esque, or, or sometimes it sounds like early Ultravox. But man, listening to this album, Desire, again... Really, for the first time in more than 30 years, this just knocked me over. This is such a great album. There's a strange way that they've put this online. The first four tracks, which do sort of segue together, are listed as a single 15-minute track rather than four tracks, sort of like a medley. But if you only listen to one song on this album, listen to what's the second track. It's called Victims of the Dance. This is, to me, this is just typical Tuxedo Moon. It's got a funky rhythm. It's got slightly strange melodies and interesting singing. And man, when we finish, I'm going to put this on again really loud. What about you, Doug? Well, I found some loud music to listen to. I woke up the other morning uh, wanting to hear Never In My Life, which is a song by the band Mountain. Uh, so I went to Apple Music and, and dug it up, and it appears on their first album called Climbing. I wasn't really familiar with this record. I only knew um, The Best of Mountain, I think is the name of the album, which has... Uh, a lot of their more popular songs on it, including the one I wanted to hear and the incredible Mississippi Queen. And so I dug this up and I thought, this is a, this is a really great record. Um, it's their debut album. Leslie West had already put out an album called Mountain along with Corky Lang, but Felix Papillardi got in touch with Leslie West. He had done some work with Cream and he wanted to do something similar uh, with a power trio. So he got in touch with Leslie West and Felix Papillardi played bass. And with Corky Lang and some other keyboard player, they put out this record, Climbing. Mountain is often thought of as, as one of the forebears of heavy metal music. I don't know. They're, they're definitely heavy riff rock, that's for sure. But heavy metal, I'm not so sure. The only other story I have about Leslie West is I did see him with the Leslie West Band, uh, second on the bill to, at a Johnny Winter concert in uh, Providence. It had to be in the mid-70s, and he was playing with uh, Mick Jones from Foreigner on guitar. And during the show, someone threw a sparkler into Leslie West's hair. It's a typical Providence thing to do. And it was several moments before he actually realized that his hair was on fire. It was smoking viciously. Uh, they stopped, left the stage, came back. It was obvious he was pretty angry, but he did finish out the set. And as I recall, it was it was written up in national magazines, too, so... Another claim to fame for Providence. Anyway, I will be listening to Climbing by Mountain. It's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>